Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. We are working to bring you the best sound quality possible in these remote circumstances, MacGyvering audio from improvised recording setups around the world. Thanks for tuning in. Now, on to your hosts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the Action Research Podcast. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and director of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a nonprofit organization in the highlands of Peru. And my name is Joe Levitan. I'm an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, also the co-founder of Centro Educativo Payatayu um, and the Sacred Valley Project, which are nonprofit educational organizations in the highlands of Peru. Today, we are going to talk with a good friend and colleague whose official title is the Queen of Awesome, (laughs) also a assistant professor and the director of internships and student affairs at McGill University. And her secondary title is the guru of reflexivity and autoethnography. Her name is Lisa Starr, and we have a lot of questions for her about some of her studies and the role of reflexivity in action research. As we've talked about in prior episodes, one of the core components of action research, which makes it radically different than other paradigms research, is the role of relationships and self-reflection in the process of doing research. Lisa's insights in her work help people interested in action research understand the, the ways in which and the processes in which reflexivity can happen. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Uh, great to have you here. Thanks. That was a pretty epic introduction. I don't know if I can live up to all those monikers. I'll do my best to answer uh, questions and hopefully give people some insight. For this episode, Lisa has shared two of her articles that will situate our conversation on the role of reflexivity in action research. You can find them in the podcast description. Reflexivity is an important part of Lisa's identity and approach to research and writing, and Adam and Joe have some questions for her. Just to get started, Lisa, can you, for the listeners, describe a little bit about the chapters that you've written and some of the things that we were talking about earlier? Yeah, for sure. A lot of the work I do is around self-study and autoethnography. And I think the parallels between the use of reflexivity in that work and in-action research are, are really important. One of the things that I've always tried to do as an academic is approach my work as a practitioner first and an academic second. And, and having been a teacher for a very long time, you know, in a lot of ways, we're professional communicators. And so one of the questions I ask myself quite consistently is how am I making sense of whatever the phenomena is or whatever the area is that I'm trying to communicate in a way that's accessible to people? And it's also one of the key things about action research that I really like is that I think it is accessible and relevant. And I think there's a wide berth for research in terms of where it's positioned, in terms of practice, academia, different fields of study. And it's important to remember that because particularly true sometimes for graduate students is you're led to believe that your work has to be of a certain format and follow a certain formula in order for it to be considered academic enough. But what I've come to discover is that, you know, if we all do things the same way, then we're certainly missing out on a significant segment of 
the population who maybe understands the world differently. And so I've always kind of tried to keep that in the back of my mind. When I was doing my dissertation, which is obviously, is for, for many of us, is a starting point on so many different things, this notion of reflexivity came up not only in the conversations I was having with participants, but also in my own thinking. And one of the reasons that I've always kind of come back to is that we have to understand ourselves and where we're positioned in order to be able to explain how we're interpreting the world around us. And in the case of research, the phenomena that we're examining and the people that we're working with. I also think it's really important to point out that for me, uh, reflexivity is all, often considered a very individualistic kind of thing that we have to consider. But I really don't think that it is. I think reflexivity is deeply relational. And so it's important to understand that even though I do self-study and autoethnography that people immediately assume is about this is just about one person, it's really not. It's it is very much derived from the relationships that we have with ourselves, with each other and the world around us. And I think that's again one of the similarities with action research. So that's where I come back to it quite often. I kind of create these analogies because it helps me to understand and hopefully it helps you. Though it doesn't always translate as well verbally as it does when you have the image to share. But I try to create pictures for people in the writing that I do and in the two chapters you were asking about uh, there are images that are included in that but I think how we write create open windows for people to engage in the work that we're doing and so in both of those chapters there's a lot of imagery being presented and part of that is to invite people in because research can be very inaccessible and it tend, it, it really tends to be, that's why so many teachers actually don't maintain their focus on research and how research informs class and practice is because it's written in academic ease. So people can't actually understand it or read it and find it has direct value into the classrooms. And I've always kind of rallied against that. So the style of writing you see in those two chapters is much more narrative. And the reflexivity that I have adopted is a way to help people recognize themselves in some of the writing so they think okay this makes more sense so in being reflexive it also challenges these traditional more quantitative notions of validity and reliability and generalizability which don't really apply to qualitative work like action research the same way that they do in quantitative work yet we continue as qualitative researchers to refer back to them and i think we we set ourselves up sometimes to be our own worst enemy when we're trying to fit ourselves you know the the square peg into the round hole where are you from Lisa's chapter called Traveling in Circles Along Roads Less Traveled in All Open Spaces opens with this important question. Your life growing up in the rural prairies of Canada can actually translate to rural farming communities in a couple different African countries, the ways in which that has informed your positionality and role as an educator. Can you talk a little bit about the processes and the self-reflective processes that you went through to build that understanding? Yeah, sure. I want to acknowledge, too, that that chapter is co-written with a colleague of mine, Claudia Mitchell, who's a fantastic friend and academic and has been really instrumental in encouraging me to continue to explore these forms of writing and perhaps even represent it as being a little bit non-traditional. And I want to just preface that by saying often the writing I do is in book chapters or leading to books because because these, this type of writing does not lend itself to academic articles, and that's why you don't see it as often. And so the only time you see these types of works referred to in more academic pieces when they're more explaining the process as opposed to what it means. And so I just wanted to make that distinction about why you're seeing this type of writing in the form that I chose to share with you. So with this one, I was fortunate enough when I started at McGill to be approached by Claudia and invited to participate in a Global Affairs Canada-funded project in Ethiopia. And the project was about agriculture 
agricultural colleges and strengthening their pedagogy, their delivery, enabling them, things like that. And the part of the project that we were responsible for was addressing gender-based violence in the colleges and understanding conceptions of gender. Because what there's a, a strong correlation between women's lack of access because of gender and gender-based violence to agricultural success. And in Ethiopia, over 80% of the GDP is based in agriculture, so it becomes quite substantial. And so what we found is we were going down to Ethiopia probably once or twice a year to do different trainings on gender and gender-based violence. And there, we had these moments where we could sit and pause and actually talk about these things. How we ended up there? How did a kid from Musha end up in the middle of Ethiopia? And one of the things that I noticed on that trip was the, the landscape, the similarity in the landscape, because for those of you that have been to the prairies, you know that they call it flat for a reason. <laughs> and in that time, where we were in Ethiopia, it, it was also very flat. Geography of the country varies uh, depending north, south, east, west. So then one of the things we started to talk about is how did the two of us end up finding each other to do this kind of work? And the more we talked, the more we recognized the connections that we had so what we tried to contemplate, and this is now going over several years, is how does that, growing up in an open space, does that impact how we see the world and how we think? Because I've been able to travel a lot. I taught overseas for several years. And when I try to explain that to a lot of people, they, they are kind of dumbfounded at, at what the experience is because they don't have enough of a reference point. So then what Claudia and I started to think about is what are those commonalities? What are those reference points that we can present to people so that they can see themselves there? So then when we started talking about the landscape and things like that, we saw this as a, a connection point. And like I said earlier, this kind of opening of a window to a greater understanding. Because in this case, when you talk about gender-based violence, it's a, it's a very difficult topic to discuss. People's experiences can be deeply personal, and they can also be completely absent. And so it makes it challenging work to do under any condition. And so we're constantly asking ourselves, how do we make this work accessible without taking a almost a colonial perspective as the white saviors, you know, dropping into this African country to save the women, which is hugely problematic and not at all what we intend. And so the process of asking these questions is an example of the type of reflection that we're constantly engaged in. We are constantly asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Where do you think that comes from? How is it connected? And it becomes almost a habit of mind or a habit of practice that we're constantly asking ourselves, why? How is this relevant? How can we explain this? Who might read this? How would they understand it? And that in turn starts to inform the type of work we're doing with the people with whom we're working. And in this case, the people in Ethiopia, we take an approach, we often use participatory visual methodologies, which are also deeply reflective, but we are constantly going back between ourselves and our thinking and the people we're working with and going back and forth and asking them. And what we find is then how it starts is more of an individualistic questioning and then a questioning of each other, and then a questioning with the group of people we're working with. And the type of insights that emerge from that are far richer and far more insightful than if we were just sitting alone in front of a computer asking ourselves, why am I being reflexive? And so that when we're talking, in my view, when we're talking about reflexivity, it's that relational piece that is absolutely essential. Now, sometimes as a graduate student, you don't know that. So when you don't know what you don't know, you can't necessarily incorporate it. So I think the key here is the starting point is asking yourselves those simple questions about why am I doing it this way? Is there a bias that I have in here? And how does that um, translate into what I'm seeing and what, and oftentimes what's missing? From what I'm seeing. And so when we chose to wrote this particular chapter, we had decided very clearly in our conversations that there was something really important about these prairie spaces that we wanted to articulate so people could understand 
what that meant, how that's informed our way of seeing the world, and in turn, the work that we do and continue to do in related to gender-based violence in a couple of different African countries. So we've since expanded the work from Ethiopia. That project is finished, and we now work in Mozambique, uh, Sierra Leone, and Mali uh, on separate projects doing similar things. And we've always been very well served by continuing to ask these questions because not only does it get us deeper into the challenges and issues, but it also invites more people to participate in it. And I think in turn, those things improve the quality of the type of research that we're engaging in. Adam is working on his dissertation and wants Lisa's expertise on how to approach the reflexive segment in his writing. He needs to provide a little research context before she can give feedback. I want to just offer like a really brief macro level view of my research so you have a little bit of an understanding of where I'm coming from and then I'd love mm -hmm. to hear what you think. So I'm looking at campus community partnerships, specifically international service learning, and I'm intending to highlight community resident voice in international service learning. So there's a ton of scholarship out there on service learning. There's a ton of calls for more research to hear about community resident perspectives, but it's just pretty hard to access, frankly, a type of like real trust-based perspective from communities that work with students and universities. I'm living in Peru. I've been living here for the past 10 years and I've been facilitating these types of programs and I've been building relationships with communities for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though I have really good relationships with them. I still consider myself sort of an outsider within because I know I'll never be able to fully relate to some of the challenges that communities here in the Andes face. Um, but still, I have strong relationships here. There's sort of three main actors in my study. Um, and I have, a di I have a different positionality within each of them. One mm -hmm. is the organization that I co-founded and am director of, Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development. We consider ourselves a bridge between campuses and communities in these types of programs. Another actor I would consider is the University of Louisville Speed School of Engineering and the International Service Learning Program that I started there. So engineering students, come down to Peru from the university, from Louisville, and we work in one particular community called Saclio to help them address a very specific challenge as it relates to their irrigation system here in the community. And then, of course, the third actor is the actual community of Saclio, um, where I happen to live and have been working for a really long time. I have really strong relationships with various people here in the community, all the way up to the president of the community. We spend casual time together drinking chicha. You know, we work together in the cornfields so there's this like symbiotic relationship between all of these three actors yet my role in them is distinct mm -hmm. so given that right and this idea of practitioner scholarship and reflexivity being relational i'm stuck how do i approach reflexivity in this study and you said a couple things that really kind of jumped out at me that i can relate to and i'd like to talk a little bit with you about that if that's all right yeah of course so a couple of them in particular was one how you consider yourself a practitioner first i'm in the same boat there i just wrote a section on what i hope to contribute to action research theory or practice and it's typically it seems to be that the verbiage most commonly used is scholar practitioner, but I'm trying to take an angle that kind of flips that and focuses on practitioner scholarship. I think by definition, scholar practitioner is the idea that scholarship and research can help influence the work of practitioners in the field. Well, I think you would agree that like there should be another angle to that where it should be accepted that the work that practitioners who spend all of their time in the field that we do can also influence scholarship. So that's one of the angles that I'm taking as it relates to my own positionality. 
And then also this idea that reflexivity is not individualistic, it is relational. I think the, the complexity of the situation that you're in being, like you said, an actor in three different capacities, you know, adds something to it. But here's the tricky part of it. And so when I wrote my dissertation, I was writing about educational leadership. And part of the impetus for me doing that study was this notion of what is a leader. And so we have a tendency to want to define ourselves. And as soon as we attach a label to it, we've created a box that makes it very difficult to travel in and out of. So if you want to call yourself a scholar practitioner or a practitioner informed scholar no matter what you do is it all encompassing as the terms can become you've now created a box and fixed it for yourself and so one of the really difficult things is to get people to kind of challenge that because when you create that box it, it essentially creates some walls that both keep you in but keep other people out in a lot of ways because really no one understands the scenario that you've described really better than you do and that's one of the things as a graduate student developing their research is you really have to situate yourself as a quote-unquote expert on what you're doing. The other thing that you need to challenge yourself on is the notion of relationships being both one-directional and two-directional, because they're actually probably much more multi-directional. And you acknowledged kind of being the outsider from within, and, and quite likely you will always be positioned that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a reality that could be existing in the community. And one of the questions you need to, act, I think, ask, and maybe you have in this process of being reflexive, but how does that role enable you, but also how does it confine you? And so there are probably aspects of the work that you do that you would have very difficult time getting real emic perspectives on, whereas others, less so. And so what you need to start to think about in terms of reflexivity, I think, is owning that process, is that there are certain things that you can influence and certain things you can't, nor should you. Because then we get into those whole colonial discourses about being an outsider coming in and changing something that do you really have the right to change and those types of questions that are really big, really challenging questions to ask. And so I think in your case, in order to engage in the type of reflexivity you're seeking, you also have to look at almost the flaws. And so we have a tendency to want to map it out in its its perfect representation. So I am this to this people and it extends to this. And, you know, I, I'm picturing the, the diagram in my head right now, but really, really that's misrepresentative of where you're at. And so having the confidence to be able to acknowledge what you can't do or what you don't have access to is also a really part of a really important part of reflexivity and learning. We often talk so much in schools about we learn from our mistakes and we want kids to make mistakes so they learn, but we actually don't allow them to make mistakes very often because we punish them in ways that the currency limits them. So for example, we want you to take risks, but if you do poorly on a test or assignment and get a poor grade, if you do that consistently, then it actually limits your access to whatever you're trying to get to in the next step. So kids learn very quickly at a very young age. This whole notion of we want you to fail to learn from it is pretty flawed in schools. And so I think sometimes as researchers, that manifests itself. So especially in a dissertation, because there's a, this is a huge aspect of your scholarship that is going to create a gateway to very important next steps. And so it's really hard for us to acknowledge that this being reflexive isn't about being perfect or talking about what works as much as it is talking about what doesn't work and why. And I, I know that's a risk to take sometimes as a graduate student, but I also think it shows a very evolved understanding of reflexivity because you're acknowledging in these relationships that you're forging with these community groups and with the community itself is that you have a role to play but also have an obligation sometimes to step back as opposed to step forward. That is something I think is very important to articulate. I do have a follow-up. One of the things that I really liked in your chapter was that you came up with questions to guide your reflexivity process. Yeah. 
You asked, what does it teach us about others? How have we approached our work in the worlds in which we dwell as a result of our past and evolving understandings? how we might be transformed by process, so on and so forth. And I really like taking that angle, right? Like having questions to guide the process. Now, based on your previous response just now, I kind of have two follow-up questions because I'm still unsure which questions I would want to guide that process for me. Mm -hmm. And those sort of general questions, I guess, are what then is the purpose of reflexivity? Also, who is it for, right? Because as I write my dissertation, I can't help but have my committee in the background. Of course, how they're they're going to interpret it and read it. But there's a little bit of, in Spanish, we say choque, right? Like a little Mm -hmm. bit of a a contradiction there because I also kind of hear um, you saying that reflexivity is for me, the the researcher is. So would you mind kind of like just readdressing these broader concepts within reflexivity as it relates to what the purpose is and who it's for? The first thing I'm going to tell you is a dissertation is a very specific form of writing. The level and the depth that you're discussing, I I just want you to understand that this is quite unique. And so part of the reason we ask people to engage in the depth of scholarship that we do for a dissertation is so that people can then endorse you to move forward to do more of this type of work. So so know that first, is that when you have the committee in your back of your mind, that is not the same thing as having an audience in the back of your mind or a community in the back of your mind. It has a very specific purpose. The second thing, I think it's extremely important to ground yourself in where you're at and why you're there in order for people to understand why this research is important and where you're coming from. Often when you're immersed in it, you think the value speaks for itself. But as an outsider, I don't do research in sustainability. I don't under I don't know the context of Peru very well. So if I was to read your work, would I understand where you're coming from and why this is important? And why are you the person best positioned to do this type of work as opposed to someone completely different? It's a little bit like setting the stage or creating the foundation or those types of things. My personal belief is that in qualitative work, objectivity is not the goal. At the same time, extreme subjectivity is not the goal either. But this idea that we distance ourselves from the work that we're doing, especially in the work that you've described, I would think if you tried to remove yourself from that process, uh, it would actually be a disservice to the type of work and the relationships you're trying to build. So in this case, the purpose of reflexivity is trying to acknowledge your perspective and why it's important and why you're there and establishing yourself as the person who can communicate that best. Then that kind of relates to the second question about what's the reflexivity for. And I'll answer it in terms of your dissertation first, and then more generally second. So again, what you're trying to demonstrate to your committee is that you know what you're talking about, and you know why you're there, you know how you've gotten there, and you know what you're purposes, because all of those things are key to establishing your approach to the research, your data collection, your data gathering, all of those things. And if you don't articulate it, sometimes it can come across as very random. And one of the first questions that I would ask as a a committee member or as an examiner is, why? Why are you doing this work? And so engaging in reflexivity can often preempt that kind of question. And then more broadly, again, thinking of the relationship between reflexivity and relationality. I would challenge anyone to to figure out how you could be reflexive and not be relational at the same time, because we don't function in isolation, even though in the current context, it feels that way. It's just not how we um, approach the world, especially as qualitative research and in an action research genre, when you're working in communities and where change is involved, these are complex 
types of challenges. And sometimes what I've seen sometimes in people's research is they fail to acknowledge the complexity and in an attempt to make it easier to understand, they oversimplify it. And I think if you're engaged in reflexivity, you're also acknowledging the complexity of the type of things that you're doing and helping people to understand that that is not a bad thing. If you ground yourself first by taking that more reflexive stance, then in my experience, what it does is it almost allows you this notion of crystalline validity. If you think of some of these things as a, a crystal and how it refracts light in different ways, every time the crystal shifts and the light hits it a different way, it will reflect light in a new and unique way. And if you equate that to research, that means you're seeing a phenomena or an issue or a person in a unique way that you hadn't previously seen it. But you can't do any of those things unless you're actually standing firmly in a place that you know what to look for. And if you don't know who you are and what you're about, then I don't think you know what you're looking for. And it becomes much more random. And I think research needs to be, especially because we're dealing with people and sometimes in vulnerable populations, it has to be much more intentional than that. There is a word for this middle way between subjectivity and objectivity. One of the terms that action researchers often use is intersubjectivity. As embedded subjects within any given context, intersubjectivity is the understanding that we build our knowledge and understanding in groups, which can be facilitated through action research and reflexive processes. Now, back to your hosts. Production manager Shika Dewakar, she's also a PhD student at McGill and she studies gender and she had some questions for you about gender. She couldn't be here today, so she wanted me to ask on her behalf. So within reflexivity and within the, the uh, framework that you use talking about landscape and where you're from, how does gender fit within those frameworks? So I think that's, um, it's a fantastic question. And it's also one that I think is deeply personal and, and individualized for me. So I'm going to offer a response knowing that it might not be enough for everyone, but I'm, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So the notions of gender, I would say I arrived at a little bit later in life. Um, I would say when I was a teacher and I, I taught in schools in Canada for about seven years, and then I taught in international schools for another seven years before I started doing my PhD. I wouldn't say that I was really kind of thinking about those roles. It's almost like when I think back on it for those 14 years, it's like I was gathering information because no one had really challenged me to, to say, you know, what do you, where do you stand on these things? And it's kind of amazing to me that nobody did. Uh, but when you're, when you enter into academia, you're often almost forced to take a stand or a position because you're trying to to create new knowledge or contribute to knowledge in new and interesting ways and relevant ways. And so when it came down to gender, I think it was both intentional and unintentional. So I'll just, I'll go back for a second. So I talked to about the research partnership I have with Claudia Mitchell, who I wrote, co-wrote the chapter with. And when I first started at McGill, uh, she was aware that I had been the previous president of the Canadian Association for the Study of Women in Education. And I became the president, and, I, and I'm being completely frank about this. I became the president because my supervisor was a previous president, and she invited me to attend one of the annual general meetings. Uh, it's a very small group group of scholars across Canada. It's probably about 120 people involved, actively involved in the association. And I had my own research presentation happening right after the AGM. And so I was getting ready to leave. And just as I was packing up my bag, Kathy said, 
I'd like to nominate Lisa to be the next president. And I was a grad student, didn't really know how things worked. And I went, yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, I'd love to help. And I got up and left because I had to go to my presentation. And, and it was one of my first presentations and I was a little bit nervous. And so I didn't put much thought into what Kathy had said. And then the next thing you know, two weeks later, I'm getting emails being invited to meetings and thinking, okay, I didn't know she was serious about that. And so I, the reason I share that with you is uh, I have kind of stumbled into so many different situations um, that have been in so incredibly profound in influencing how I've been thinking. And I, I say stumbled because it sounds very random and I actually don't think it is, but in the moment, it seems like it. So when I when we were talking about these landscapes and these open spaces, one of the things that Claudia and I often ask ourselves is do we see the world in a more adaptive, flexible, open sort of way because of our experience growing up in the prairies? And does that then allow for us to engage in these opportunities, whereas other people can be extremely focused and, and don't see the opportunities in front of them? Has our thinking or our, our pathways evolved differently because of that prairie influence? And we were trying to tie it back to the actual landscape. And so part of the reason I'm, ch I'm sharing this story is because when I started doing this work in Ethiopia, it, I stumbled into it in a very similar sort of innocuous way, is that my children and I had moved here from Victoria, where I had done my PhD, and they went back to BC to visit their father in August. And so I was here in Montreal by myself. And Claudia knew that, and she emailed me and said, hey, do you think you might want to go to South Africa to do a gender training with some of our colleagues in this project? I hadn't been involved in the project. And I, I took about, I don't know, a minute to maybe think about it. And I wasn't thinking of, wow, this is an amazing opportunity or, or, or wow, this is going to be interesting. I just thought, hmm, yeah, okay, I'm not doing anything. So sure, why not? And that's about the level of thought that went into that. It, it's similar to when I first went to Pakistan to teach, um, I didn't even know where the city I was I had been hired in was on a map, and I looked it up afterwards. Uh, and so there's these random occurrences that I think, as much as they seem arbitrary, I don't think they are. And this is what where Claudia and I were going. And so when I come back to the idea of gender, which was Shika's question, I think for me, gender has become an anchor point of sorts when I look for the commonalities. And so this reflexive stance in research is something that I am I'm constantly doing with myself and all aspects of what I do. Why am I doing this? what is important about this. And it's it's become a very natural position to be in that stems from a lot of different other things that I could probably go on for hours for. But I think this notion of gender, when we come back to it, is part of my, almost the essential part of my identity that I maybe hadn't acknowledged prior to these opportunities. But now that I've engaged in them, I understand about how clear that lens is through which I see the world. And so now that I, I am much more aware of that now as a result of honing my reflexive practice is that now I see the world this way. And it does also prevent me from seeing the world in other ways. And I acknowledge that. But also one of the things it's done is it's also, I think, created a almost like a launching off point for expanding my understanding of the world. So when we talk about uh, gender, inevitably, the conversation moves towards feminism, which I think is essential to how I see the world from a feminist perspective. But feminist perspectives are also deeply troubling when you think about how white feminists have marginalized other feminists of color. What it constantly does 
is it becomes very, very iterative. So I think if you're truly reflexive, this is not just a research position. This is something that you are fundamentally at your core. And that becomes an extremely iterative process so that it is constantly coming back on itself to ask more questions, which then as it loops back around, changes your initial conception and the questions that you're asking and the perspective that you have. And the next time it loops around, it does it again and again. So you, you know, you're constantly rethinking the position that you have and why you have it and how it informs your work and what's absent from that, what's missing, how does it serve others? And the questions just keep going. Some people have a real struggle with asking those questions, those constant questions. And I I find it to be, albeit an all-consuming space at times, it's also a very comfortable space because I have learned that without asking those questions, I don't think I would understand the world the way that I do. And I'm very happy with how I see the world. And I think it does serve me both personally as a, a human being, as a leader, as a parent, as a friend, but it also mirrors how I function in the workplace as an academic, as a teacher, as a leader, as a director. And one of the things that the role of gender has really helped me to understand is that is a fundamental lens through which I both act and view the world. But I wouldn't have known that 15 years ago. And I think what you described in the process of reflexivity, as much as it is personal, it's also the process of action research with this iterative question posing and action reflection cycle. Um, yeah. as it changes, you know, fundamentally changes the way in which you think, act, and, and behave in the world and, and how you view the world, which is really what action research is about doing. It's about making these iterative, yeah. constant steps forward towards something better. And I think that that's what really what you highlighted. So as much as it's personal, I find that the way in which you described it can also be helpful for other people in terms of the process. And going back to what I I had mentioned to Adam earlier is this notion of reflexivity as being a way to establish a foundation. I think it's really important too, just to, for, for the sake of the visual, I'm not talking about a brick and mortar foundation, one that's very difficult to break down that you need a sledgehammer to pull apart. It's a much more malleable, uh, much more like there's more space within it so that it can be adjusted. Mm-hmm. So that it's still, it's a structure that is still very sturdy, but that can be reconfigured with each interaction that we have with people, with each new opportunity for growth and understanding. And that, I think, is something that comes with time, but is one that I absolutely adore because I now am able to adjust the foundation and the materials on which I stand and create space and know that I can still confidently stand upon it and be safe and move forward in the world and invite others to join me. You know, I can expand it, I can shrink it, I can do all those things. And I think so often when we're talking about reflexivity, again, especially with the dissertation, you're looking for an absolute, you know, four by four brick platform that is exactly this high and this wide. And I don't know that beyond the purpose of the dissertation that that is very realistic. Adam wants to try a new segment in this episode. He wants to play hardball with Lisa by asking her some hard-hitting questions in a speed round of Q&A. In one or two sentences, right, what, how you would reply to someone pushing back on uh, or sure. challenging, let's say, your study, right? So. Yep. When I read your chapter, I didn't notice that you had a research question. Yeah. Why? What was your research question and why didn't you have one? Why do I need one? <laughs> I think one of the obligations that we have is to challenge these things. And who said we need a research question? Why do I need a question? Isn't the work that I have I've done, doesn't that stand on its own? Question two, what were the measurable outcomes of the study? 
Okay, here's the other challenge is that measurable outcomes are often determined in a chapter like this based on the reader's response. And right now, the way that we function in academia, it's very difficult to measure a reader's response. And so there's a certain amount of, I guess, faith in the publication process. If it wasn't worthy, it wouldn't be published. But I'm not necessarily looking to advance a particular concept as much as I am looking to engage people to get them thinking more deeply and expand their thinking about how we do that. And the reason I choose the style that we do is because, in my opinion, we're, we are quite storied individuals. And to write anecdotally or in a more storied fashion creates more possibilities that people will think more than it would if I had a more, here are his outcome A, outcome B, outcome C. That, you know, that's great for academics, but that's a really small and very privileged group. How is anyone else going to make sense of it? Question three, what would you say to somebody who argued you're too close to the people you're engaged with? Why is that wrong? Lisa, your sample wasn't big enough. I, I had a colleague, actually, he was doing a job talk and we ended up hiring him and he made a, a really good observation is that you can look at things through a telescope and learn something, but you can also look at things through a microscope and learn something, but you're going to learn something very different. So why does it have to be applied to everyone in order for it to be viewed as valuable? Humans don't, we're not all the same. And so we can't tell the same story. I love it. Last question. What makes this action research? That's a, that's a tougher question to answer because I don't know that it was ever intended to be action research, but I think the notion of reflexivity is more about the parallels. So if I was to move forward with a true action research study, I don't know that I would frame it. Um, I wouldn't have approached this the same way. I would approach action research in a little bit more of a structured way, but I think in the dissemination of the action research, then I would revert back to more of this type of style because it's more accessible to people. Lisa, thank you so much for taking That's the time my to talk with us today. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. If people walk away with anything, it's that it is it's okay to ask more questions and not know the answers to them. As researchers, I think we're constantly trying to answer questions. And I think we underestimate the value of asking more questions um, because that allows other people to continue on and take up the work. And I think if action research is really about kind of the action, asking those questions is really important um, as is who we ask the questions of. I want to send a special thank you to Shika Dewakar, our production manager, and Vanessa Gold, who is our sound guru, for all of their help and work on this. Thank you once again, Lisa, for this really insightful conversation. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast. Mm-hmm.